At a time somewhere near early fall 1987, Howard Storm gave one of his first public talks in front of a group of about 15 friends at the home of one of those friends. For the first 30 seconds or so of his talk, the lapel microphone that he was wearing wasn't connected to the recorder. So on the recording, what he said was very difficult to hear. The following is a close reproduction of that. It's at least almost exactly what he said and how he said it. Following that will be the rest of the talk, just as he gave it. Um, I want to tell you just a little bit about where I was at before my experience. I was... Um, I was living in a place of extreme egotism. I uh, I was an artist. I was made full professor. I had a comfortable job. My wife was and is an attorney. I built my own home. Everything I did, I did with my own effort. There wasn't a thing in that house that I didn't put there. There isn't a thing in that house that I didn't put there. Um, it was like a real A-type personality. And like, um, I decided I wanted flower gardens, so like immediately turned about a half an acre into flower gardens. Brought in, um, picking up off the highway, about a hundred truckloads of rock off 275 and made terraces. I mean, whenever I did anything, it was like... <laughs> no, but everything I did, I did with like this extreme passion and nature. And um, I felt like I knew everything worth knowing. I felt like I had an absolute grip on the world. I um, had a lot of um, feelings about suicide that I tried real hard to suppress. Um, because I felt like everything I experienced in life when I was done with it, it was, so what? Why did I do it? Why did I bother? Um, nothing ever produced the promise that I wanted. Um, the only thing that was really sort of keeping me going was a real loving wife. and I had a couple of good kids. and um, I had some um, friends whom I cared a great deal about, and I felt like they cared about me. Um, so that was my attachment to the world. I was, um, I had, I thought that anybody that practiced any kind of religion or anything like religion was involved with um, wishful thinking and self-deception. That the only reality was the physical reality that we knew, and that um, it became convenient to develop. I, I used to tell people that I was an atheist, and then that was like, you had to work too hard to defend that position. <laughs> and so I just say I was an agnostic, which would keep people off your back. And I thought maybe something like in the Star Wars movie, maybe there was some kind of like unseen collective energy to the universe, but um, it wasn't something I was very concerned with. The only thing that um, touched my life in terms of um, real contact with any kind of spirituality was in painting. It was very clear that sometimes I was inspired and sometimes I wasn't. And I attributed that to um, psychology, that you would achieve a Maslowian peak experience state in painting, sort of beyond your control, where um, your consciousness would be overridden by the total experience of the activity that you're involved in. And that was like a really neat thing. And I knew that. I had to have good circumstances to achieve those kind of peak experiences. I couldn't be too hassled, and I had to um, be alone, and I had to concentrate on what I was doing. So that was my one and only um, attempt at <coughs> anything mystical or spiritual. Um, I was taking a group of art students around Europe. This was um, in May of June of 1985. There was my wife and um, five students. And the only um, 
unusual thing that was happening during the trip was is that I was um, having these um, sort of mini emotional breakdowns in museums and in cathedrals, which was real surprising because I'd spent my entire life visiting museums, and uh, I found that be a very educational experience and sometimes an inspiring experience, but to be walking around a museum and all of a sudden start crying. Um, I, was all, I was also a person who didn't cry. Like, for example, um, when I was building my house, I took the uh, thumbnail and the tip of my thumb off, and it was like spurting blood and everything like that, and I just kept on hammering, and my wife came over and it was like this blood, you know, and she's saying, doesn't it hurt? And I said, yeah, it hurts like hell. You know, I mean, it was like, but I was... You know, I was a man, and men didn't cry, you know. Um, so, that was real strange. Um, and the day before um, my experience at the uh, La Angerie, which is part of the Louvre, where the Monets are downstairs, these giant cyclorama-like water lily paintings. I had a real bad case, and I um, literally ran out of that museum in, a his, in hysteria. I was just like crying and crying, and, I mean like snot and moaning and groaning, <laughs> the whole works. And my wife came running after me, and I said, like, you've got to stay away from me. Leave me alone. And I went by the bank of the Seine, which is right there, it's on the edge of the Seine. And I just stood there and cried, and I was like, what is happening to me? You know, I didn't know what was going on. And, and other places had evoked those kinds of feelings, too. Um, for example, Saint-Chapelle really um, flipped me out. It's an um, unbelievable cathedral, real near Notre Dame, but it's uh, um, surrounded by the uh, police administration administration building so it's hard to find and uh, and it's overshadowed by Notre Dame so that not many people go there it's very beautiful it's, um, the glass in there is incredible so um, on the morning of uh, June 1st 1985 which was a Saturday I'd gone to uh, Delacroix's studio and had seen his writing desk and his studio and his palette and his sofa and his easy chair and you know and that was um, really nice and I, was, I was really in a high spirits and it had just been me and my wife because nobody else wanted to get up and we came back to the hotel and we were about to go to the Georges Pompidou Center which I was real look, really looking forward to going to because I'd, I'd never seen that and I was talking to a student and I grabbed my stomach and sort of started to fall to the floor, and I screamed at the student, get out of here, you got to get out of here. And I crumpled up on the floor, and um, I thought that I had been shot. And I actually looked around the room to see where the bullet had come from. And I, because I was standing near a window, I couldn't figure out why the window wasn't broken, because I was sure I'd been shot. I hadn't heard any sound. But the window wasn't broken, and... I realized that on the outside of me there wasn't any um, evidence of a wound, but the, on the inside um, I felt like a knife or a bullet was in me. And it was very, very painful. And I was sort of um, real panicked and real afraid. And I yelled at my wife to go to the doctor. She, I'll go through this part pretty fast. She um, got a doctor there and he gave me a... a small amount of morphine because he diagnosed me as having a perforation of the stomach or small stomach. He wasn't sure which. He spoke English. He was very nice. And he said he wanted to give me just enough morphine to get me to the hospital because I would probably need an operation. Ambulance came, two really um, nice young men um, helped me out of the room and into the elevator and down the stairs and all this stuff. And the morphine um, sort of put that pain over there. You know, like, it kind of hurt, but I was actually trying to make jokes and small talk with the ambulance drivers, and I had this wonderful ambulance ride through Paris. We went about eight miles. With the, um, I can't make this. Can anybody make the ambulance sound of a French ambulance? 
<laughs> so imagine riding on your back at this ambulance, going through going through French traffic. It's a minivan, a little minivan, lying on your back, and this really nice young man. Well, one back there with me, and my wife in front with the driver, and we're going to the hospital. And I've got this pain, but it's it's manageable now because the morphine's really really working for me. And I'm thinking, well, this is you know this is kind of a bummer, but you know. What's this, two weeks or something? It'll be a story when I get back. It'll be an experience. You know, it's not that big a deal. So I was actually kind of enjoying it. And um, and I was really trying to sort of let go of my fear of this minivan tilting this way and going, tilting that way, and, you know, like, and never stopping. Like, we never stopped. We, because <laughs> you know what Paris traffic's like, right? Um, I felt like we were going over sidewalks and things. We go into the emergency room to... Um, um, young women doctors um, do a very thorough examination of me and say that I have a um, perforation of the duodenum, which is the small stomach. And you got your big stomach, and it's, it's the beginning of the rest of your intestinal tract right after it. And I had a hold there, and I needed an operation immediately. And both my wife and I asked them if um, there was a possibility of me going to another hospital or going to America. And they said absolutely not, that um, this was very, very critical and that I would never make it to America. I would die first. And um, that kind of freaked me out because I, w- I was really beginning to enjoy sort of the attention I was getting. And then all of a sudden the big die word comes in here and I was like, ooh, scary. So I started to take this all very seriously and they took me over to the surgery unit and put me in a room. And uh, this the time is 11.30. So all happened really fast. And I'm supposed to have the operation at noon. Okay. Everything's going to be great. One o'clock comes and goes. My wife can't find out why nothing is happening. Two o'clock comes and goes. The morphine is beginning to um, not be so effective, and the pain's getting great. I mean, those two, both those things are happening because hydrochloric acid, which is your stomach acid, is um, moving through my system, you know, and spreading out through my abdominal cavity. And uh, 3 o'clock comes and goes. My wife gets thrown out of the hospital for the first of three times for um, bugging the head nurse about why somebody won't do something for me. I'm starting to beg. I'm starting to beg for morphine in French. You know. I, um, I have a roommate, and he's a 66-year-old um, gentleman, very fine man, who spoke English, Frenchman. And so he would plead for me when the nurses would come in, and they... Um, the same thing was only the doctor could prescribe any remedy and he was busy and then the doctor would come by every once in a while not into the room but out in the hallway and my wife would run out to speak to him and he wouldn't talk to her and although he did speak English he refused to speak to my wife at all um, because she was a mere woman tourist I mean, she wasn't worth speaking to <laughs> Well, she was literally thrown out of the hospital three times. But this was the worst day of my wife's life because here she was watching her husband go down the tubes and, you know, just draining away from her and everything she tried to do. I mean, here she's a person of respect and power. She can get things done. You know, and over there she was like nothing. And I, I've, I was lying in the bed in a fetal position. I'm trying not to cry. Um, it was very difficult to talk. It was very, um, breathing hurt, um, moving my neck hurt, everything I did hurt, and the pain didn't come and go. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse. It didn't throb. It didn't, like, build and ebb. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And around 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I thought, nobody in the world can hurt this much and be alive. Why am I alive? I mean, that, that's what I was thinking. I mean, whether it's true, you know, pain's relative, so that, that's where my head was at. This is beyond what a human being should be able to endure. Okay, around 6 or 7 o'clock, um, I was, I felt like every minute that I was alive was like an act of will on my part. I was willing myself to stay alive, and I felt like all I had to do was die, was to stop struggling. And I would die. 
I mean, I felt like I was literally, you know, just fighting, fighting off death. Um, my wife was a complete wreck, emotional wreck. I, I could just barely whisper. And at 8.30, um, they, the nurse came into the room and said that they, um, the doctor was going home and they were going to operate on me on Sunday. <laughs> this is Saturday night, yeah, and that they would have they'd do my operation Sunday morning, and uh, I thought about that for a little while. I was way too weak to argue or even discuss it, so I didn't. My wife would look. I mean, she just looked so awful. I felt so sorry for her. I didn't want to upset her anymore, so I said to her. I love you very much. Goodbye. And I closed my eyes, and I just, it was the easiest thing in the world. I just let go to die. And I knew that what would happen next would be like going to sleep, except it would be forever. So, you know, it was real, real easy. Um, people always ask me this when I tell a story, you know, were you really dead? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, there were no monitors. There was absolutely no equipment in my room. Absolutely none whatsoever. So, I mean, I was getting no medical attention, so there was never any um, anybody to tell whether I died or not. I felt like I did. Um, there was a sensation of like going to sleep, of just lock, loss of consciousness. And I was, I was happy about that. I mean, I wanted that. Because there's no point in going through what I was going through anymore. I mean, it was ridiculous because there was no way I was going to make it till morning. So why, why fight until 9 o'clock? Because you're going to, I, I knew I was going to die real soon. So I was sort of choosing my time. And um, I opened my eyes and I was standing looking at my body in the bed. And I was standing right next to the bed. And there was my wife. And I started yelling and screaming at her. Like, what's going on? How can I be standing up looking at myself? And I felt completely real. And she didn't respond to me. And I um, gestured wildly and I started swearing, swearing and screaming and yelling. And um, no response. So I turned around. I figured that she was like... Um, crazy or something. So I turned around to Monsieur Florent, my roommate, and I started yelling and screaming at him and the same thing. He just like frozen. They did absolutely nothing. It was just like frozen. Except that I knew that they were alive and I knew that my body was empty. And I had... It's real strange because um, I had no interest in getting back into that body or having anything to do with the body. The body was nauseating to me. And it was real distasteful. And I was panicked. I was afraid. Um, obviously, the first things I thought about was, is this a dream? Is it a hallucination? And the, everything, by every sensation of myself, I knew that it wasn't a dream or a hallucination. It was actually more vividly real than normal consciousness. Um, and that's how I knew it was either a dream or a hallucination because I had, um, in my younger days, taken hallucinogens and they, you know, they were real interesting, but they tend to narrow your focus, you know, and they make certain things very vivid, but um, you also have this real sense of a loss of control and a real sense of like sort of a narrowed um, scope of vision and things like that. You, you only, the only things that are vivid are the individual things that you're, um, aware of at certain moments. In this, I was like, everything was, I was like more aware of everything. All my sense, senses were heightened. And I, was, and I kept saying to myself, this is not possible, this can't be happening. Um, all I wanted to do was to die, and now I'm stuck here. You know, I don't want to be, and oh, and the pain didn't, um, it was sort of there, but it didn't really bother me. And I was standing up, and I, and I felt, relatively good and I was aware that I had a problem in my stomach but it wasn't a big you know it wasn't um, 
very important. It was sort of like a mechanical problem rather than pain. And I heard voices outside the room with no French accent calling me by name to come out, to come with them. And I had a lot of reluctance to go outside that room because there was my wife and Monsieur Florent and my body. And I didn't want to leave them. But on the other hand, nobody would respond to me. And I needed help. And here were these people that knew me by name. And nobody in the French hospital could say Howard. There wasn't a soul in the whole French hospital who could say the word Howard because um, it doesn't translate into French. So it was real, stra- it was real strange that they, could, so they spoke English and could say Howard so clearly. So I thought, well, that's in their favor. They must really know me. <laughs> so I went to the doorway, and it was real vague outside the door of my room. It was a fog. It was a mist. And it was ill-defined. And I stepped into that. And this was a willing, conscious act on my part with a real reluctance. I and mean, actually, a real dramatic scene of, like, my hand on the door frame, sort of, like, stepping into the mist. You know, and like not really wanting to let go of that door frame, but I did. And um, in that mist, there were people, but they were um, beyond being able to see them very clearly. They were all far enough away, like um, 20, 30, 40 feet away. And there was just enough mist that I could just make them up. And they were tall, and they were short, and they were male, and they were female, because I could make out silhouettes. And every time I would approach somebody, they'd back off into the mist. And that bothered me. Um, I asked them who they were, what they wanted, and they wouldn't answer anything directly. For example, um, if I said, well, who are you? They'd say, you'll find out. I said, they kept saying, let's go. We've got something for you. We can help you. Um, you need to come with us. And I said, well, where? And they'll say, it's real close. You'll find out. I mean, everything was always, I couldn't get a straight answer. And that bothered me a lot. And then they became like, if, if you stopped asking questions, you know, this would all be worked out real soon. You know, and they started pressuring me with urgency, like there was an urgency to this. So I started following them, and we walked in the mist, and we walked, and we walked, and we walked. And one other thing that I became increasingly aware of during the experience was is that um, I had always, all my life had a real good sense of time. I was the kind of person who um, knew what time it was, whether I had a watch on or not. I could be at the right place at the right time. I was real into punctuality. Um, I could wake up in the morning by programming myself at night before, you know, like wake up at 5.30 and I'd wake up at 5.30. I mean, I always had a real good sense of time. And I was real aware that, like, um, I didn't have that sense because nothing seemed, there was no difference between a long time and a short time. There was no sense of time. Things began increasingly to seem timeless. And that's real hard um, to describe, except that if you've ever been in a car accident, you get um, a few, you get a sense of timelessness as you get that adrenaline rush and you see these things coming at you and you're like going, oh, wow. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and that all happens like in just a second or two, but you get this sense like you almost got this. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was getting into that kind of sense of time. So anyways, it felt like we walked for days and weeks. And, um, you know, many, many times I got very, very reluctant that they would coerce me on. And then I started feeling very, very tired and weary, and my stomach was hurting, and I was feeling um, real cold and sick. And uh, they were starting to make fun of me. Um, I, my sense was that I was wearing a hospital dickey which was tied here at the top, which left my butt exposed. And people were talking about my ass and stuff like that, which made me feel real uncomfortable. And um, I I would hear people talking about me, and I'd say, what are you saying? And they go, 
nothing, you know, if you weren't so lazy, would be, you know, would be getting somewhere. But because of you, we never get anywhere. And all of a sudden, I was like, I was really beginning to feel really paranoid. Like I was, everybody was in on something that I didn't know what, what was going on. And this went on and on and on and on. Um, and, was, and the only way I can describe it is like if you were invited to a party um, and you didn't know it but there was going to be some big giant trick pulled on you and everybody else knew except you and I had a real strong sense of that so ultimately we ended up um, in the dark the, the fog kept getting thicker and thicker and darker and darker and we ended up and it was like I couldn't see anything I could not even see my hand in front of my face it was so dark and the people around me had kept moving in closer and closer and closer so now they were right just beyond my reach. I could tell by their voices. I mean, knew who they were. And I said to them, I'm not going any further. I don't like this at all. I don't like you. I don't want any part of it. I want to go back. You know. And I was swearing at them, and they were swearing at me, and we started yelling and screaming. We started pushing and shoving, and they started, um, and this is in the dark, hit me and I'd swing around try and hit somebody and every once in a while I'd make contact and the thing that was strange is every and I was beca I was becoming like this um, I, had, I was having this huge intense sense of energy and power and I was like kicking and slugging and clobbering and everything I did they laughed at I mean I'd make full contact you know and I'm a, I mean it was, I would hit so hard it would like really hurt my hand and the person I'd hit would laugh hysterically and meanwhile, they were tearing at me. And I'd be like that way, and like um, fingernails or teeth would come and just like tear like a piece out of my cheek or a piece out of my thigh or something like that. And it was incredibly painful. And I came to realize that the point of this whole game was to simply inflict pain on me and that my pain gave them joy. It gave them pleasure. And when they were done with me, um, essentially done with me, there wasn't enough of me to fight back with anymore. And I was um, so full of hopelessness and despair and pain that there was, I wasn't responding because I was pretty much torn apart and I was on the ground. And there wasn't, the game was kind of winding to a conclusion. It was over. And I wasn't much interest to anybody anymore. And uh, this is a real strange thing that happened because um, now I find this kind of thing fairly normal, but at the time I found it quite extraordinary. I heard myself coming from inside of me saying to my consciousness pray and I said to myself I said to that little voice that said pray who I knew it was me but I don't know where it was coming from I said to that why why bother I mean that's like a cop-out you know only you know that's for you know like children I don't do that and the voice insisted and I argued with it some more and it said pray again and the problem was I didn't know what really what that meant because I hadn't done it since I was um, like probably 15 years old was the last time I ever prayed you know in going to church being taken to church on Sunday and so I used um little bits and pieces of things that I could remember and I didn't really say them with any particular sincerity I just I used the Pledge of Allegiance and I used the Star Spangled Banner and a few snatches of the 23rd Psalm and a little bit of the um, Lord's Prayer and just yeah yeah all the all the formal stuff I could think of you know if there was anything formal or sort of old English sounding anything that sounded King Jamesy I said it and uh, they didn't like it at all. The people that were around me were really pissed off. 
And they were yelling and screaming at me to stop it and that I was a fool and nobody could hear me and what I think I was doing. And if I'd mentioned God or so that they said there's no such thing as God and like, you know, they thought I was, um, you know, um, they said that, you know, why was I relying on that, you know, superstition and that nonsense and stuff like that. Um, I liked the effect it was having on them. It was pissing them off. And I really liked it a lot. And I became more and more forceful as I said these things. And I started swearing and just mixing, mixing prayers and swears and everything. And I started shutting them. And they got angry and angrier, but um, they got more and more distant until eventually I realized that I was all alone and they were all gone. And at one point I had a feeling that there maybe were hundreds of them, if not more. Initially, I felt like there were maybe 20 of them now. And as the journey went on, there seemed to be more and more and more all the time. And then now they were definitely all gone. There was no sense of them around. There was no sound of them around. And then I felt very, very bad because I, didn't, I hadn't believed any of the stuff that I was saying. I just, I just did it. And it had an effect, so I did it. But it wasn't wasn't real sincere or anything and I'm lying there I'm completely helpless limbless and uh, I'll turn up and I use this analogy because it's real accurate a sense of how I felt I felt like a match where the flame had gone out and the ember was cooling off and the ember was expiring and the little red tip of the match was just getting fainter and fainter and it was just going to be a little and I felt like I had a real strong sense and I, and I was saying to myself this is really it this is what I've always really wanted was nothingness this is really the bottom and I made it finally and this is my conscious mind and it was a strange place to be at because um, I don't have any words to describe how I felt because <clears throat> there was a certain sense of satisfaction. There was an incredible sense of sadness and aloneness. Um, I'm going to skip over that. <laughs> I don't want to get there again. And... Uh, that little voice that had suggested prayer said to me, Jesus loves you. In the sense of the Sunday school song of um, Jesus loves me, yes I know. And I screamed into the darkness, please Jesus save me. And I meant it. I didn't have a clue who Jesus was and, and I'm not going to go into any big religious thing, but I cried out to be helped in the way that as a child going to being taken to Sunday school by my parents I understood was the name of God I mean that's what I've been taught you know that and I meant it what when I cried out for Jesus's help I cried out for God's help um, I see them as synonymous anyways and um, In the darkness, I became aware of a star or a small light, and it started getting very big, very fast, and I realized that it was coming right at me. I was almost afraid because I knew we were on a collision course. I mean, it was on a collision course, and it was coming really, really fast. And it came right on me, and as it did, I came up off the floor, and all of me just came all back together again. And this was a lot like um, in Star Trek when they used the transporter and someone gets beamed aboard. I just became beamed whole again. And I was surrounded in this light and I was aware that the light was a being and that the light, I knew that the light, all these things I knew immediately that the light loved me that it knew me, that it was really powerful. Um, 
is good. And we went out of that place. And there was a real strong sense of moving upward very rapidly. And we traveled together, and I was in ecstasy. Um, you know, if you can, I mean, what it was like, and I don't mean to vulgarize it, but um, if you can imagine having orgasms of every sense and of your intellect and of your every capacity just having its ultimate ecstatic moment, that's what I was into, and it was wonderful. <laughs> and I wasn't talking, I wasn't thinking, I was just like, I mean, here's me and my buddy, and we're traveling through space, and, you know, this is really great. Um, and off in the distance, I saw that there was um, a center of flying. And as we approached it, I saw that um, there was an infinite number. I didn't count them, thousands, millions, <laughs> billions of small lights entering and leaving at different rates and in different directions. This great, great center, like a sort of like an image of a um, galaxy, except that there was all this motion around it. And the center of the galaxy was like the center. And the radiance that it gave off was like my friend. It wasn't really light, although it illumined, but it was so intensely powerful and brilliant that as we approached it, I could feel that radiance penetrating me all over. Even though I was in the being of light, as we approached the center, the, the effect of the, the great center of the light was so powerful that I could feel it all over me and penetrating through me. And the sensation that I was having was so intense that as we got closer and closer, I thought to myself, I'm afraid. And my fear was is that it was too much. It was too intense. Um, and the minute I thought that, my friend said to me, in my mind, and and my friend had a voice, and it wasn't my voice. It was another voice, and it said to me quite quick, Oh, that's okay. We'll stop here. We don't want you to be afraid. And I was greatly relieved, and he called other radiant beings who, from henceforth, I'll refer to as angels. Um, he called other angels to us, and these were just other luminous centers of radiance. Um, and they all had slightly different hues and slightly different characters, characteristics to them. And they came to us. One of the first questions they asked me was, do you want to see us in human form? And I said, absolutely not. I said, I've seen plenty of that. This is the most beautiful thing. This is what I thought. I said, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in the world. Please don't show me human form. Just be what I'm seeing now because like this is incredibly beautiful because oh I was seeing like a lot more colors than we can see <laughs> and I can't explain that and I was um, feeling all these feelings that are beyond like my feelings and I was having the sense that I was being pumped with knowledge and all these things were going on and I was being really overwhelmed and the last thing I wanted to be was reminded of anything worldly or earthly and I told them that they had the wrong person and that I didn't belong there. And I meant it. Although I had already gone through this tremendous healing process, I really, part of me wanted out. I wanted not to be there and not to be part of it. And I said to them, I think you've made a mistake and maybe you should put me back where I was because I don't belong here, because I was having the sense that I was in this, like, world of incredible love and perfection and beauty, and I felt like a, a piece of filth. I mean, that's how I thought of myself. And they said that they don't make mistakes, and that I was exactly in the right place at the right time, and that this was 
what it was supposed to be. And I, I kind of argued a little bit about that. And I said, are you sure? Are you really sure? I've got the right guy. And they said, yeah. And they were doing all these um, heavy um, love numbers on me. You know, every time I'd sort of sort of weaken and get like, I mean, the, the, the common expression is weak need. I mean, I was beginning to get real insecure. That sort of bolstered me up with just feelings of love. And they'd say um, things, and I'd respond to them. Right at this early stage, I said, um, since everything I think of you respond to you, do you know everything that goes on in my mind? And they said, yes. And I said, what if I have a thought um, that I don't want you to know about? And I said, um, we know everything you think about, and we've always known everything you thought about. So everything I've ever thought, they were already aware of. And around that time, they decided that we'd go back over my life, and we watched my life as if it were um, a holographic presentation. It was very clear that it wasn't real, that it was just a... Um, images of my life and we skipped over some parts and we dwelled on some things and the whole purpose of all that was to show me to teach me and it was all done real lovingly and it was um, something I didn't really relish because also since they kind of controlled the way we went over my life the things that I had achieved like um, becoming a full professor um, working my way through college um, winning shot put awards in high school and stuff. Like, none of that stuff they were at all interested in. It was complete. <laughs> and the stuff that they wanted to talk about was how when, you know, someone had come up to me that I didn't particularly like and they were hurting and they said, you know, can I talk to you? And I said, well, yeah, but I'm really in a big hurry. Um, you know, what's it about? They, yeah, they really, they, they, um, go into real slow-mo on that, you know, and, like, <laughs> and there were also good things that I'd done. Um, there had times when I had responded to people um, lovingly. Um, it was real interesting that we went over my relationship with my father, whom um, he and I had always hated each other, and they showed me how I had really um, fully participated in that. And I said I always felt the victim of a bad father, and they showed me how when my father had been hurting, um, my father's not a, um, a self-analytical person, to say the least, but there had been times when he'd been hurting and he'd wanted, like, a friend, you know, his only son. And I had, like, you know, fungu, Dad, you know, for all the all the times you've hurt me, I, you know, oh, sorry, Dad, got an appointment, you know, you know, too busy for you. Um, so... That, that felt real bad. Um, after we went all through that, the whole point of it, the whole conclusion of it was, is that the way they value life is how you respond, how you love the people that you're with, and that's all that matters. Everything that we do in this world is um, unimportant except how we interact with other people. The skills that we acquire in this world will be useful later, but in a completely different form. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain that later. So I asked them every question I could ever think of, and they answered them all. Um, if I had it through all over, over again, I'd have you know different questions. But um, at the time, I asked them everything. I asked them, I asked them, you know, why World War II? Why the Holocaust? Why? Um, why evil? Why do people die? You know, um, on and on. I mean, you know, everything I could think of. Other people on other planets. Um, on. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. No, I'll be happy to tell you, but I go on and on and on and on for days and days. I mean, I'll tell you anything you want to. Um, well, I asked them about um, life on other planets, and they said, oh, let us show you. And they, this, once again, was um, the, the real thing, interesting thing about how they showed thing was um, not only did they answer me, but they frequently showed me and even let me feel them. And so they said, look, here's a small glimpse of the kinds of life there is in the other world. And there was like a parade of life in front of me. 
And it was just like, I mean, every conceivable kind. I mean, of, and I was just going like, oh, wow. And they said, you know, and then I was thinking, I'm never going to remember all these. Because, I mean, first they showed me five, then ten, then a hundred, then, you know, thousands. And it was just like more and more and more and more. And I said, wait a minute, wait, okay, I get the point. I get the point. I said, like, how, how much life is there in the world? And I said, it's absolutely teeming. And they said it's teeming not only in this physical world, but even in other dimensions. And they, were, and they had just been showing me in the dimension that I had grown, I had, was aware of. They said there are even other dimensions to the world that, like, we have no knowledge of. And so I asked them, the next question I asked them, they said, well, if this is true, how come people on Earth don't have concrete signs that there's life in the other one? They said, because... You guys abuse everything we give you, and that you're under quarantine now. The few worlds that do visit you visit you very, very carefully and try not to pick up your illness, your evilness, and that they handle you very gingerly, and they're leaving you alone until you're ready to join the community of the universe, and you're not ready to yet because you're... Um, you know, so immature, so naughty. And I, and I said, well, like, what kind of stuff have you given us? So I mean, just one question led into another one. And, I, and they said, everything you have, we've given you. And I said, well, what, men have done a lot of things on their own. And they said, no, everything that man's done, we have put in man. Every idea that man has had was a, every good idea man has had was a gift. Electricity, the telephone internal combustion and all those things were inspired and men have just been led the way a mother or a father leads a child towards a discovery you know that's right dear that's right you know go for it you know little cookies and little spanks along the way to lead us in the right direction to um, and that they had gifted us always way ahead of our wisdom because they love us so much that they're willing to take the chance just as like we as parents who want you know, I have a 22-year-old um, daughter, and I also have a 17-year-old son, but anyway, so it was real hard with the daughter to let her ride a bike, then to let her ride a bike on the street, and let her ride the bike to a friend's house, you know, six blocks away. And it was always too soon. <laughs> daughter. And, but because we're loving parents, we let them go, even though in our hearts it's like, I told my daughter once, and I meant it, I said, you know what I'd like to do with you? I'd like to lock you in a room and keep you and hold you and love you forever because you're so special to me. And she looked at me like, ew, yeah, oh, dad. <laughs> and I didn't mean anything gross, but I, I mean, I just like, you know, I, when I think about all those young men that paw her and they don't appreciate what a special person she is. <laughs> um, but that's how they treat us. They love us so much that they give us more than we can handle, more than... Yeah? Mm -hmm. I'll go to it. <laughs> and they want us to become more responsible for the things that they've given, been given because recently, this is getting fun, recently we've been given a lot of big gifts. Um you know, particularly in the latter part of the 19th century and the 20th century, that just, like, showered us with gifts. And what we've done with them, they're very, very unhappy about. Because what we were supposed to do with them was to start building, um, not, a, not a utopia, but we were, start, we were supposed to start building the brotherhood of man where everyone would live in unison and in happiness, and we were supposed to do away with things like war and jealousy and greed. And we, and we were supposed to be creating a society where loving and nurturing and pursuit of truth and education and personal development were the qualities and what we've done instead was we had done like World War One and we've done World War Two and we've done nuclear weapons with all these things that they've given us. And they were um they're not happy. They're real unhappy about that. You know, it's I, a few months ago I gave my son um uh seventy three Volkswagen. The second day he um ran into a car the second day. And it's like I'm going, like, David, I can't believe it. You know? Like, 
<laughs> I gave you this car, you know, and like you wrecked it. And it's like I'm, you know, and that's how they feel about us. I mean, it's like, you know, they don't know whether to laugh or cry. <laughs> you know? And they feel everything that we feel. So when we inflict pain and misery on other people, they feel that pain and misery. All the suffering that we cause in this world to others, they feel it. They also feel our joy and our happiness, too. They feel everything. They feel our emotions. They know our thoughts. They, in fact, are not there and we're here. They're here. Um, and not only for our sakes, but for their sakes, what they want us to do is to get about the business, which we're supposed to be about. Um, so I asked them, what's, you know, so what's that going to look like? So they told me and they showed me. I'm starting right now. This, this is the time. I mean, one thing that I felt really good about was this is, this is, this is a great place to be because this is the beginning of the new age. This is the beginning of the new world. It's the end of the old world. It's going to be a real hard period because this is, like any period of gigantic transition, is a difficult, stressful time to be in. But we all have the opportunity to be witnesses to the, to the real beginning. Um, I asked them about, like, well, are we going to, is it going to take, like, a nuclear war or something to do that? And they said that there will not be a big nuclear war. There won't be a big one. They simply will not allow that to happen. They said they are they despise nuclear weapons, and they might use a very little exchange or an accident to scare the piss out of us to get us to do something about them. Yeah, they're talking about very little. I mean, they're they're thinking about no, no, like more like Chernobyl kinds of things. Nuclear accident kind of things. Yeah, the um, the thing, the way that um, they're going to have to um, enforce the lessons is that economically, this country is going to go down the tubes, and it's the best thing in the world for us because we're spoiled, rotten, materialistic um, assholes. And, uh, and during the during the moment, that's what they told me. No. Um, that they don't want to do, they didn't want to do that. They don't want to cause pain and suffering. But um, we've been ripping off the world. I mean, we've been ripping off the world too long, and we've got to learn how to live um, simply and in harmony with the world. That in 200 years from roughly now, it'll all be worked out. Um, and what the world will look like then, which was a real surprise, they gave me, they showed me that um, the main business of the world in 200 years from now will be people developing themselves and their children spiritually. Most of people's lives will be spent nurturing the young. The, the, that's what people will do for a living, is nurturing the young. And the young will be anyone that isn't there yet. And by there yet is when you, when you become mature, you will be able to collectively tap into the collective mind of everybody else around you. You'll be able to literally control the weather. You'll be literally able to decide, now it is time for me to ascend into heaven, and I will ascend, you know, this is, I'm ready, I've learned in the physical, this physical plane what I need, and now it's the time for my ascension, and you'll ascend. But before that time, the business will be about learning and developing spiritually, learning how to Increase and increase and increase your capacity for love, understanding, and knowledge. Um, but not knowledge. Their sense of knowledge is more like music than it is the sensitivity to music. Like one thing that I learned in the thing is that musicians are like real valued in heaven. Not because they make up the heavenly choir, but because the sense, the sense of creating harmonies in, in, in great complex arrangements is a real valuable skill for the later work of what the angels do. And, um, yeah, yeah, they like creative people. 
the real answer to creativity. I'm sending one of my questions. And, oh, really? I have a question. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to steer us off because you got a nice quote here this morning. But did you get, but did you get a sense of their relationship to uh, their project, so to speak? I mean, how, how did it change? Oh, what? Hey, what? What? there'll be very, very little technology because people have so little need for it. In other words, people will be able to go anywhere they want to simply by um, thinking it. And they'll be able to um, be able to do that spiritually and they'll be able to do it physically if they choose to. And people will be able to travel all over the universe and people will be able to travel to other dimensions. But the focus of the work will be this garden, this school. I mean, people... People won't really be that interested in exploring other worlds because the focus will be on this world, and when they ascend, then they will move on to other worlds. So it's not like nobody's in a hurry to leave here until they've done the work that they feel that's necessary. And that this world, people will be struggling to learn, struggling to develop, struggling to enhance their spirituality. I mean, it'll be work, and people will fail. And, some, and, you know, every once in a while in the future, someone will feel anger. And, like, the whole collective population will go, like, you know, how have we failed? What have we done wrong? You know, this person has felt, you know, a negative emotion. You know, and, and the whole collective whole will be, you know, concerned. Well, maybe it's a good thing. You know, maybe it's part of their development. You know, everybody's, like, focusing. Everybody will care about everybody else. In 200 years. Um, and that that is where they want this world to be. And Okay. The, uh, the sense that I got from your question is, and I said, is this absolutely the future? And they said, no, this is the future that we're working towards and we want you to work towards. And I said, well, is it going to happen or not? And they said, well, that depends on a lot of factors, um, but this is what we want to happen. And I said, well, if you, it seems to me that you could make anything happen that you want to happen. And they said, you, you haven't learned anything. That they allow us the freedom to not, but on, on this, they're getting anxious. They're getting tired. This has been, you know, this game, the, the war, hate, starvation, greed, nationalism games. They're really burnt out on it. They figure everybody's learned as much as they can possibly learn from it. So um, they're really interested in bringing this whole stage of human development to an end and moving on to the next. So they're, they're, it's more than just a possibility. It's a real strong possibility. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that many of the prophetic visions of many near deaths centered right on 1988 this year. Did you get a sense of, of time or any events happening about now? Mm-hmm. And just in the just in the sense that they told me that I was going back right in the middle of it, and that was 1986. I mean, it was the beginning. They told me that was the beginning. Not that June 1st, 1986, was the beginning, but that general time period was the beginning. Um, We talked about all kinds of. I, I really could go on and on and on, but I want to. I want to sort of wrap this up, and then we can go back and talk about individual. Pro- I mean, I want to wrap up what happened. So, anyways, what happened was, I had exhausted all the questions that I had, and they had actually overwhelmed me with the answers that they'd been given. And I had like so much stuff going on in my head. I finally said, "Okay, I want to. I want to be." like you, with you, now, I'm ready. You know, I no longer feel bad about myself. I feel real good about myself. I'm ready to be, how can I become like you? And also, during this whole process, I was beginning to become aware that my body was becoming more and more transparent. And that what, when I entered that place, I still felt real solid and real real. It was beginning to become real vague. 
and I was thinking, like, boy, this is, I mean, I'm, ready, I'm really ready to become a luminous being. And they said, you have to go back. And I argued and bartered with them. And some interesting things came out of this. <laughs> um, some, some interesting points came out of this. For example, I told them that um, if I came back to this world, I would make mistakes and I would feel very, very badly. I couldn't possibly be the person that they wanted me to be. So therefore, I couldn't come back because they would be sending me back doomed to air. Yeah. They said that they had made us to look at they had made us to look at all different kinds of choices and that there were good choices and there were bad choices and all kinds of choices in between and that's how we learn. And they said that the error is in continually to make the wrong kinds of choices over and over and over again. The point is to learn. And they said that's what when you go back Make all the mistakes you want, but learn 